he said to his Soviet counterpart, he said, you can't kick a lady when she's down. And the Soviet commandant turned to him and said, my dear Colonel Howley, that is exactly when you should kick an old lady. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. We speak with author Giles Milton about his new book, Checkmate in Berlin, the Cold War showdown that shaped the modern world. In 1945, at the end of World War II, the Soviet Red Army captured Berlin. For the next four years, a handful of charismatic but flawed individuals, British, Americans and Soviet, fought an intensely personal battle over the future of Germany, Europe and the entire free world. Checkmate in Berlin tells this exhilarating high-stakes tale of grit, skullduggery and raw power, from the high politics of Yalta to the desperate scramble to break the Soviet stranglehold of Berlin with the greatest aerial operation in history. This is the epic story of the first battle of the Cold War and how it shaped the modern world. Now, I could really use your support to continue producing these episodes. A simple monthly donation via Patreon will deliver you as a monthly supporter the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you will bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Still not sure? Here's one of our listeners. This is Mark. I support the Cold War Conversations podcast because this is fantastic history, textured, in-depth, real stories, and it is very positive that we can preserve this for future generations. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. We also have a book giveaway for this episode, so do make sure you check out the episode notes. So, back to today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Giles Milton to our Cold War conversation. When I began to research the book, I was really surprised at how little had been written in this this kind of crucial period from the very end of the Second World War through to the Berlin Airlift. This was, um, it, it was crucial because basically the fate of of post-war Europe was being decided in this period. And so much of it was being decided uh, inside Berlin. And uh, not only inside Berlin, but by a very uh, small handful of extremely powerful men who were playing um, a sort of cutthroat power game, if you like. And the winner of this game was really going to determine the shape of Europe for years to come. So um, when I began researching it, I began to look at the sort of key players who were inside Berlin from 1945 through to 1949 and what exactly the game, the, the game was that they were playing. And there's definitely a, uh, a rich list of characters here. I mean, with names like Frank Howling Mad Howley and Brigadier Robert Looney Hind... Um, you can't fail to be intrigued by some of these people. No, you couldn't really make those ones up, could you? Um, Colonel Frank Howling Mad Howley, as you say, he was uh, would eventually rise to become the commandant of the American sector 
of of Berlin. And he really is uh, an absolutely key and pretty much forgotten figure of the early Cold War. Why was he so important? Because at the end of the Second World War, the Western allies who'd been fighting alongside Stalin, uh, the American President Roosevelt and Winston Churchill, British Prime Minister, were determined to try and keep going this wartime alliance. They were determined to preserve good relations with Stalin. But the men on the ground, men like Colonel Frank Howley um, and Brigadier, as you say, Brigadier Looney Hind, but particularly Frank Howley, realised that this was not going to work, that the Soviets were untrustworthy allies, and that there was no way that this wartime alliance, this great partnership, was going to survive the end of the Second World War. And so um, from that, from the point at which Frank Howley arrives in Berlin, he's almost declared his own private war um, on the Soviets, um, against, going against the better judgment of, of President Roosevelt. So it, we're set already for an almighty clash that's going to take place inside Berlin. We are. We are indeed. And it's probably worth just talking about the the, the time prior to this, because your, your book opens with uh, the conference in Yalta in February 1945. Yes, I think this, this great, the great big three conference um, at which President Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, travel to Yalta down in the Crimean Peninsula to meet with Stalin, with hundreds of aides, advisors, military men. And they are there to really to try and thrash out the shape of not only post-war Europe, but really the post-war world. Um, And both Roosevelt and Churchill, um, as I just said, they are determined that this wartime alliance, which has has worked it's been difficult, but it's worked. It's been successful. They're determined that this is going to last into the post-war period. And so they really enter into discussions about how the post-war world is going to look. Uh, Stalin's Red Army has already occupied large chunks of Eastern Europe and Central Europe and is uh, poised to advance into Germany at this point. And so Stalin really has the upper hand. Um, He wants to uh, hold on to everything. He's all the ter- territorial gains he's made. Um, he wants to hold on to large chunks of Poland. Um, Roosevelt, uh, his prime concern is to set up and sign up the Russians into a new body called to be called the United Nations. And Churchill's aim really is to pr- preserve the integrity of the British Empire. So they have, they all have come there with their demands, their, their, what their wish list, if you like. But above all, they are hoping that they will be able to remain as allies. And you have these these amazing banquets, which I just you know describe in in the book, where they use gushing language. You know, Churchill describing Stalin as his greatest friend, wonderful ally, and everything. And the question really hanging over uh, Yalta is that: Will this great cordial meeting of minds actually survive the ending of the war? The problem from the Western Allies' point of view is the rapid advance of the Soviet army. The Soviet army is going to enter Berlin within a a few months of the Yalta Conference taking place. So this is sort of the backdrop um, to everything that is going to unfold in the early Cold War, is that um, will this policy, Churchill and Roosevelt's policy of remaining onside with Stalin, is this going to survive? They hope it will. There are many on the ground who believe it won't. The Red Army arrive in Berlin in early May 
1945. And it's a brutal occupation, isn't it? It is. I mean, the the battle for Berlin and then the subsequent occupation uh, by the Red Army is, frankly, it makes for horrific reading. When you read uh, the accounts of Berliners, German, German, particularly German women who were in the city at the time, the, the Red Army had been pretty disciplined as it worked its way towards Berlin as a military fighting machine. By the time it got to Berlin, uh, this was an army that, uh, out of control, basically. It was, the soldiers were uh, often drunk. They were uh, looting indiscriminately. And most shocking of all, where they were raping, uh, raping any women they could lay their hands on. And the accounts um, of what what took place there, some listeners will be uh, familiar with the a woman in Berlin, which describes in graphic detail what it was like um, to be abused by the Soviet conquerors. And the Soviet conquerors, the Red Army soldiers, I sh- should be said, who have been really sanctioned by the uh, upper, the hierarchy uh, of the of, of the Red Army command to basically do whatever they want when they got to Berlin. Um, and, and, and thus began a, an appalling season of looting, of raping, and of drinking uh, in, in this shattered, ruined city where nothing functioned. There was no functioning government. There was no functioning water supply, electricity supply. It had, it had completely fallen apart. Um, and into, this, into the ruins moved this uh, undisciplined army. It should be said, actually, that um, even for those on the ground, some said that the initial wave of Soviet troops were relatively well-disciplined and obeyed the command of their their senior commanders. It was the second wave uh, of of troops that moved in that were really an uncontrolled rabble, uh, and it was they that committed many of the rapes and, and the looting. At Yalta... There's agreement that Berlin is going to be occupied by uh, the British, the Americans and the the Soviets. Um, And the French later uh, carved out a a zone out of the American and the British zones, I believe. But they're, they're not able to get into Berlin until June 45. So the Soviets have sort of like free reign over Berlin until mid June. They do, yeah. To 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 sort of explain uh, without having a, a map in front of me, uh, but to explain that yes, Berlin as a city is going to be divided up. So the Soviets are going to get the east of the city, the Americans, the British, and French are going to have the west of the city, and likewise for Germany, the uh, Soviets are going to control the eastern part of Germany, and the Brits, the Americans, and the French are going, going to control the western part of Germany. But you just have to glance at a map to see that this there is a problem with this with this uh, decision, because Berlin lies deep inside uh, Soviet occupied Germany, and this means that the Western Allies, the British, the French, and Americans, have to cross Soviet territory uh, to bring in their supplies, their troops, to bring in, in fact, absolutely everything that is needed in the Western sectors of Berlin has to cross through Soviet-occupied Germany, to get into the city. And this is, uh, this pr- is going to present a massive problem for the next four years, really. But it also 
presents a massive problem for the Americans, Brits and French actually moving into their sectors. Because for, um, for between May and the very end of June, the Soviets will not allow the American and British garrison troops to cross their sector and move into Berlin. And this gives them, you know, two or three months to basically to ransack Berlin and particularly to ransack the Western sectors that are going to be controlled by the British, American and French and to take away absolutely everything that could be considered of value. So, you know, by way of example, they would move into the big industrial plants that exist in the western side of the city, the the Siemens industrial plant, for example. And they they just simply dismantle these factories and they take away absolutely everything. From their point of view, this is reparations for the, you know, massive damage that the German war machine has done to the Soviet Union. But what it means is that when the Western Allies arrive, finally arrive in their sectors of uh, of the west of the city, they find that everything has been either looted or completely trashed. Um, and there is almost nothing left except ruins. It's interesting, some of those descriptions in, in, in the book at, at, at that point. So how does the first meeting with the, the Soviet commander of Berlin with uh, the the two commanders of the uh, the British and the American sector go? Well, this is where the character of Colonel Frank Howling Mad Howley comes into play. Um, he was extremely hot-headed, um, bullish. He was a, a complete cowboy uh, in some ways. Um, he was a man who liked to get things done. He didn't like any rule books. He didn't like red tape. He liked, you know, what, what he wanted, he expected to happen. Um, and this was to cause great problems when he came up against meet, you know, meeting the Soviet commandant because the Soviets expected what they wanted to happen. And from the very, very beginning, we have this um, clash of personalities, clash of systems, clash of, clash of everything, really, which is to be a, become a hallmark of the relations between the Americans and the Soviets in their sectors of Berlin. With the British, it's rather different. Um, the British sec- section is to be effectively run by um, a chap called Brigadier Looney Hind, as we've mentioned before. He is uh, rather an old-style brigadier. He's been brought up in the British Raj. He uh, he sort of intends to rule his sector of Berlin rather as if he was running a game of a match of cricket. You know, it's all about fair play, and he's the even-handed umpire. And he is determined to follow his government's uh, command, which is to get on with the Soviets, to do everything he can to work alongside the Soviets and make the running of the city work as a four-power body, which means that all four, pa- all four commandants will be working together for the good of Berlin as a whole. So this is what Brigadier Hein tries to do. Brigadier Howley believes this is unworkable. He believes that it is simply impossible to work with his Soviet opposite number. Um, and the French, they, they come in later and and frankly, the French play a much smaller role in everything that is to happen. It really becomes the British and the Brit- the British and the American uh, voices, as opposed to the Soviet voices. And they, these two, these the two Western powers, 
increasingly will simply not agree with anything that the Soviets want to do. And Berlin is managed through the the Kommandatura, isn't it? The um, that that's the the sort of body that the the uh, different commanders make up. This is this is correct. So it has been decided at Yalta and then thrashed out in the months that followed the conference that Berlin was to be run, yes, by the Kommandatura. And this was basically uh, the four commandants of the four sections were going to get together every two weeks or every every month. And they were to they were to sit down and to discuss all the major problems and headaches that faced Berlin as a city as a whole. And so uh, these were things such as denazification, how to eradicate uh, the the Nazis uh, from the city. Uh, They were things like... um, the idea of dismantling and reparations, how much should the Soviets be able to take uh, to repay everything that's been destroyed in the Soviet Union by the, by the Nazi war machine, the Wehrmacht. So uh, they are to sit down, they, 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 they get this building, which becomes known as the Commandatura, where they meet. Uh, it's funny enough, this building, this, it still exists today. Now it's part of the Berlin University. But the room in which they met um, has been almost preserved as it was in 1945. You walk into the room, there's this long wooden table. And the four commandants sat next to each other around this table, surrounded by advisors, by secretaries, by stenographers. And they tried to thrash out the problems of the city. And this is where the problems really began, because they did not see eye to eye. I mean, one of the one of the one of the earliest uh, issues they tried to solve was uh, how many rations that Berlin food rations Berliners were going to get. They had very different ideas as to who should get the most rations. So Frank Howley arguing for the Americans, he would say that, you know, it was the elderly, the sick and the infirm who should get the biggest rations. They were the ones in most in need. The Soviets disagreed. They said it was those in power, those in positions of authority that needed the biggest rations. Um, and uh, Frank Howley, in one notable uh, line uh, that came out of you know one of these meetings, he said to his Soviet counterpart, he said, you can't kick a lady when she's down. And the Soviet commandant turned to him and said, my dear Colonel Howley, that is exactly when you should kick an old lady. Um, and and that, that sort of anecdote uh, really sort of sums up for me the problems that were to, to really uh, set, set in hold in, in the Commandatura, that it was, it was almost impossible for these four commandants to see eye to eye on anything. And it should be said that, of course, it was not just the four of them trying to solve the huge problems of Berlin. What they did is for every issue, rations, food, denazification, reparations, they set up committees, public health, everything. They set up committees with each committee had a representative of the each power. And they were also surrounded by advisors and secretaries as well. So you had this immense bureaucracy that is trying to uh, run one of the great capital cities of Europe, which is in ruins and in which nothing is working. And, and of course, you know, you can't run power supplies, electricity supplies, water supplies. Um, in, you can't just in, run them in each individual sector. 
This has to work as a city-wide network. So it requires all four powers to work together if Berlin is going to function as a functioning city. Um, and, you know, from the very beginning, it becomes apparent that it is not going to be easy for the Western powers to work with their Soviet counterparts. By no means, by no means. And and the little anecdote you, you just gave a moment ago, I think illustrates some of the the great things in the in the book that I enjoyed is that it's not just a history. You get to see the personalities behind the decisions being made, and there's a lot of eyewitness accounts in there as as well, which I particularly enjoyed and I hadn't heard before. Yeah, I, I think um, it, it's a fascinating story because the kind of the wider picture, the the, the macro story, if you like, if, if the beginning of of the of the Cold War. It fits so perfectly with a micro story, which is the the these four commandants on the ground. I mean, Frank Howley, the American commandant, you know, he said in his memoirs, he said him him with the loudest voice gets heard, and he certainly de- was determined that his voice was going to be the loudest. But he found himself up against the Soviet commandant, uh, General uh, Alexander Kotikov, who had been selected by Stalin to lead the the Soviet delegation uh, inside Berlin. And thus began this sort of great duel between these two men, both of whom were absolutely determined to win. Um, What was very interesting at the very beginning was that Howley was under orders, uh, very strict orders from Washington, to um, do nothing to ruffle the feathers of the Soviets. Remember, at Yalta, it's been decided that they're going to try and stay on good terms with the Soviets and with Stalin. But Cowley realises from the outset that this is not going to be possible. The Soviets have a completely different way of doing things. They have a completely different political system and model. And so um, from a very early, within few weeks of being in Berlin, he realizes that Washington's policy is totally misguided and is not going to work. However, this puts him not into, not only does this put him into conflict with his Soviet opposite number, but it puts him into conflict with Washington and with the Allied Control Council. This is the second key body that has been set up, uh, has been decided um, at Yalta to be set up to run Germany. So while you have within Berlin, you have the Kommandatura, which is looking after four-sector Berlin, in Germany, Germany as a whole is going to be run by the Allied Control Council. And this is uh, the four military governors who represent the four uh, areas of occupied uh, Germany. Again, British, American, French, and Soviet. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com 
slash donate to find out more. The problem is, um, is that Frank Howley inside Berlin finds himself on a collision course with General Lucius Clay, who is the American military governor of occupied, of American occupied Germany. So you have uh, Frank Howley finds himself assailed on all sides. Not only do the Soviets profoundly disagree with everything he's saying, but also uh, General Lucius Clay in charge of uh, occupied American-occupied Germany, and also um, President now President Truman, who's replaced President Roosevelt, they are all against what Howley is doing in Berlin or wants to do inside Berlin. So Howley finds himself this lone sort of warrior, cowboy warrior running the American sector of Berlin against the wishes of uh, of the Soviets and of his own side. Um, it sets up, it, it, it shapes up for an almighty showdown. There's other circumstances that sort of start to alert the West that it's it is going to be really difficult to deal with Stalin, and one of those is the defection of Igor Guzenko. Yes, uh, there are several things that happen that really set the alarm bells ringing in both Washington and in Whitehall. And the first of these is, as you say, the defection of Igor Guzenko, who worked at the Soviet embassy in Canada, and uh, Guzenko, uh, a rather fascinating character. He goes to moves to Canada with his wife and young child and rather likes it. And he wants to stay. And he's also not happy with uh, the espionage acti- activities that he is involved in in Canada, which uh, is really invol- uh, uh, involves um, him spying on or infiltrating the uh, the North American and British nuclear program to develop uh, nuclear weapons. And so he defects in the spring of 1946. And when he defects, he reveals to uh, the American government, the British government, and the Canadian government that there is the Soviets are engaged in huge-scale uh, espionage in North America. And this comes as a profound shock to both Truman um, and to Attlee and also to Mackenzie King, the uh, Prime Minister of Canada. They have no idea of the duplicity of this erstwhile ally, this, this you know, Stalin, who they are determined to stay on good terms with, is actually trying to infiltrate their nuclear program. So this causes um, huge shock in the capitals of the West. And the second big thing that happens that spring is, of course, Winston Churchill's Iron Curtain speech, his famous speech, at which he sp- says to the world, um, basically, that the Soviet Union cannot be trusted. St- Churchill, who's been a, you know allied with Stalin, now turns around and says... This is a man we can no longer do business with. The Soviets are trying to take over Central and Eastern Europe, and they have to be stopped. Um, a, a, a speech that sends shockwaves around the world, really. And, uh, a, a, and really, uh, it's the first sort of public uh, expression of a world that is dividing into two completely separate halves. There is one, a third thing that happens in 1946, and this is the famous long telegram written by George Kennan, who is uh, working at the uh, American embassy in Moscow. He, too, has been studying what is going on, what the Soviets really want to achieve. And when asked to uh, deliver his 
analysis of the situation, he sends this kind of fire and brimstone telegram back to Washington, his long telegram, setting out exactly what the Soviets are attempting to achieve, and that is the domination of Eastern and Central Europe, and quite possibly the domination of Germany as well. So these three things, Guzenko's defection, uh, Winston Churchill's famous Iron Curtain speech, and George Kennan's long telegram, they suddenly, they send a shockwave through Washington and through Whitehall, who begin to realise that this policy of uh, continued alliance with the Soviet Union has had its day, and things are going to change very dramatically from this point on. Now, the the occupying powers are allowing political parties to be formed in the occupation zones. Can you just outline what the situation is in, in Berlin with these parties and what it sort of morphs into? Yes. Now, when the uh, Soviet army, the Red Army, moved into Berlin, within days, quite literally, of their arrival, uh, a very secret band of revolutionaries were brought into the uh, German capital. These were German, uh, German communists who'd spent the Hitler years in exile in Moscow. They'd become close to Stalin. And they were now sent into uh, Berlin. And their task was to, uh, first of all, set up a German Communist Party and also to try and take over or, or, or control all the local administrative bodies that existed or were going to, were going to be established in Berlin, um, in each of the districts of Berlin, and also to take control of the all-important police force in, in Berlin. So they moved in in 1945, and they did exactly that. They tried to really um, get a get a hold, get a grasp on the local administration before the Western Allies came in. Now, it became apparent that uh, the communists were never going to win at the ballot box inside Berlin. I think the, the, the behaviour of the Red Army had really tainted so badly the communists um, uh, in Berlin that they didn't stand a chance. So the idea of the leading communist, uh, in, the German communist in, in Berlin, Walter Ulbricht, was to merge the fledgling Communist Party with one of the other political parties that had been formed um, inside Berlin, the Social Democratic Party. He wanted to merge this into what was to be known as the Socialist Unity Party. And he was hoping by this means that um, he could surreptitiously bring the Socialist Unity Party to power, but actually, really, he'd be controlling it behind the scenes and it was, this was going to be a Communist Party in all but name. But when the elections took place, it was an absolute disaster for the Social Unity Party, Socialist Unity Party. It was hammered at the, pol at the polls. Um, and, uh, in fact, the Social Democratic Party scored an incredible electoral triumph. And this, uh, this marks the first moment, 1946, October 1946, where we begin to see a political division taking place uh, inside Berlin. We begin to see the, the Socialist Unity Party drifts over to the east and is taking control of the eastern the Soviet zone, uh, Soviet sector of Berlin, whereas the Democratic Parties are, 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 are sort of making their base 
in the western side of the city. Uh, and this, of course, is gradually as the as the years move on, as we move on through 47 and 48, this division between the two halves of the city is going to become ever more pronounced, not just politically, but with the, the local police force, um, etc., splitting into component parts. So uh, this is how the, 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 the city begins to really drift into two separate spheres. Whilst there's political battles going on, there's also cultural battles as well, isn't there? There are so many battles going on going on, on so many levels. Um, propaganda, of course, is, is high on everyone's list. Um, the Soviets are masters of propaganda. They send in a colonel, uh, a highly talented colonel by the name of uh, Sergei Tulpanov, Tulpanov is um, speaks absolutely fluent German and has a profound understanding of German culture, German literature, and German music. And he's determined to um, use this knowledge to sort of cast the Soviets as 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 the great champions of German culture. You know, aware, of course, fully aware that Berlin was a highly cultured uh, city. And one of the ways he does this is just one one little example, but it sort of uh, brings brings home just how they were prepared to work, is that the most famous cultural figure in the post-war period is probably Wilhelm Furtwängler, who is the uh, famous conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic. Now, he had been tainted by association with the Nazis and the Western powers did not want Furtwängler to come back into Berlin in a hurry. He was living in Vienna at the time. And they insisted that, as with everyone who wanted to you know, perform on a public stage or have a public role, he had to go through a denazification process. Well, the Soviets took a rather more, rather more pragmatic view to this, and Sergei Tulpanov wanted to bring Furtwängler back to Berlin, and he wanted to bring him back to the Soviet sector of Berlin as sort of proof, if you like, that the Soviets were on the side of German culture. And this is something he did quite deftly, um, bringing Furtwängler back and allowing him to perform uh, in the concert halls of the Soviet sector of Berlin. It was, uh, it has to be said, a propaganda triumph. Many Berliners were deeply moved to see their greatest cultural icon, Wilhelm Furtwängler, performing classical music in the Soviet sector of Berlin. Tulpanov, this was not his only propaganda coup. He took control of newspapers, of the radio station, and he did everything he did to sort of damn the Western, the, the so-called Western allies, um, to vilify particularly Frank Howley, who he absolutely detested, um, but the Americans and the British, they fought back. They set up their own radio stations. The, the Americans in particular set up the famous RIAS, Radio in American Sector. And they brought in um, a very skilled uh, technician propaganda master um, called William Heimlich, who was to prove uh, brilliant at the game of propaganda and particularly brilliant in this sparring match against Tulpanov, at which they really waged a war of the radio waves, if you like, with, with Tilpanov damning the Western powers for everything they did, and Heimlich um, trying to uh, set up a radio station that offered Berliners what they wanted, light entertainment, classical music, 
new shows the like of which had never been heard on Berlin radio. So, uh, you know, throughout the course of 46, 47 and going into 48, we have this, uh, uh, this clash, really, between the West trying to win the hearts and minds of Berliners, to use a modern phrase, and the Soviets um, on their part doing everything they can to woo Berliners and show that actually Berlin and Berlin culture is far closer to Soviet culture than it is to the sort of frivolous gum chewing Americans and to the to the British with their with their you know Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. Um, it's a it's an absolutely fascinating story and and one that's been very little explored, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I wasn't aware of any of of that, and there is a lot in the book that you know. I thought I knew my early Cold War history, and obviously, I I don't after after reading this. And there there were lots of little bits of detail which uh, I was completely unaware of. Now, the, the there's disagreement also as to how to manage Germany going forward. The the Western allies want to rebuild the economy. Whereas the Soviet view is is to continue taking reparations and basically ransacking the country. That's absolutely right. I mean, let's let's wind back to 1945. The Soviets and the Western powers have very similar ideas as to what is going to happen to Germany. It's going to be pretty much dismantled. Its industry is going to be dismantled and, and shipped off as reparations. It's going to be denazified. It's not going to be allowed any sort of form of uh, army um, very, very limited government, if any at all. Germany is going to be really taken apart. Now, this policy begins to change in 1946, when it is realised that actually dismantling Germany is not a very good idea, particularly as the West are increasingly growing increasingly wary of the Soviets and their designs on the country. They realise that actually maybe rebuilding Germany is a far better idea than dismantling Germany. And of course, the Americans, more so than the British, the Americans are also eyeing up the potential for exporting their goods to a a, a rebuilt Germany. You know, this could be potentially a vast market for American goods. Um, And so what began as a dismantling exercise, taking the country apart, suddenly shifts into a rebuilding exercise, um, a fascinating and very dramatic shift. And really, um, there are two things that I'm sure many listeners will have heard of uh, that come into play at this, at this time. One is the Truman Doctrine, and the second is the Marshall Plan. The Truman Doctrine is really to give American and Western support to any country that is under threat of Soviet do- domination. And the Marshall Plan is to really provide money, billions of dollars of money, to help the rebuilding not only of Germany, but the rebuilding of Europe. So we have this dramatic shift that has taken place between 1945 and 1947 uh, of one of dismantling to one of rebuilding. And when the West sets its mind on rebuilding Germany, 
they realized that actually having these various uh, zones of occupied Germany, the American zone, the British zone, and the French zone, well, they realized, hold on a minute, it doesn't make much sense to have three separate zones. Why don't we bring these zones into a, into a sort of economic an almost political whole, this will be a much more efficient way of rebuilding the shattered economy of the Western part of Germany. And so as we 46 cup drifts into 1947, we have what becomes known, first of all, as Bisonia. Bisonia is the merging of the American and British zones into one, one, one sort of area. And this then becomes Trizonia, as the French also join, uh, join this zone. And, you know, if you can imagine these, these three zones gradually coming together economically, politically, in all sorts of ways, transport, you know, the structure of these three, three zones, you, and if you, if you can imagine that on a map, you begin to see the foundation of uh, Western Germany as it will become. And on the on the other side of the border, which is which is fast developing between the West and the East, we have the Soviets um, really dominating their zone and taking economic and political control control of their zone of Germany. Uh, and there you have it. You in a nutshell, you have this split of what was formerly one gigantic Germany is now splitting into two. Irre- irre- irreconcilable uh, different countries. And as we move into 1948, there's increasing worries about the, the Soviets sort of effectively cutting off West Berlin from its lifelines in what will become West Germany. And this is these worries are compounded by a US train being stopped in April and also a Soviet yak fighter crashes into a British airliner in, in April as, as well. Uh, to, to sort of set the scene and, and really what is at stake, in the western sectors of Berlin, you have 2.4 million Berliners, um, all of whom need to be fed and supplied from the western zones of Germany. Uh, you also have the garrisons of the French, the British and the Americans, you know, several tens of thousands of soldiers who also need to be supplied and kept equipped from the western uh, zones of, of Germany. What this means, because Berlin is sitting as an island in a sea of red, it's sitting in the heart of uh, Soviet-occupied East Germany, this means that every single uh, bit of food, coal, fuel, uh, weaponry, everything that is needed to keep the western sectors of Berlin, not just the garrisons, but the population alive, has to be transported from western Germany. This means it has to cross through Soviet-occupied eastern Germany. And it does this by two means. One is the use of a rail link, which links uh, Western Germany with Berlin, and the other is by means of a road link, which likewise links Western Germany with the Western sectors of Berlin. Now, as tensions begin to increase in the spring of 1948, the Soviets are looking at their maps and thinking, uh, we can, we, all we have to do here is to cut the rail links and cut the road links 
and the Western powers have got an almighty problem on their hands because they cannot bring anything into the West, their Western sectors of Berlin. And the idea of a siege begins to take shape, not a siege of Berlin as a whole, but a siege of the Western sectors of Berlin. What they can do by cutting the road and rail links is that they can uh, starve both the garrisons and the population of West Berlin into submission. This is, is the sort of great idea. Stalin, of course, is desperate to wrest control of the whole of Berlin, kick out the, the Western powers and take control of the whole of Berlin as uh, what is believed to be the prelude to taking control of the whole of Germany. Now, the Western powers are absolutely determined to stop Stalin uh, winning at this game, and none is more determined than Colonel Frank Howling Mad Howley. But how on earth are you going to supply a city of 2.4 million extremely hungry Berliners when you have got when the road links and the rail links have been cut? Well, the only possibility is to bring supplies in by air. The great, you know, this great idea of an airlift um, to supply the inhabitants of Berlin. But this uh, is fraught with danger. You mentioned the, the collision between a yak and an American plane landing into Berlin. This is uh, a great catastrophe in the spring, and it really highlights just how dangerous, dangerous the airspace above Berlin is. You've got Soviet yak fighters flying around Berlin. You've got civilian planes trying to bring in supplies to Berlin, and the inevitable happens. These two of these planes crash um, and... and uh, and there's a there's a huge wrangle as to who is at fault. Um, but, you know, as the Soviets shut down the road links and rail links into the Western sectors of Berlin, the West has absolutely no alternative but to use these air corridors, which have been agreed in writing back in uh, 1945. This is the only access route that was actually agreed in writing um, prior to the Western allies moving into their sectors. So these are the only means of access to Berlin. But the great question on everyone's lips is, can you supply a city of 2.4 million inhabitants with everything they need by air? Well, it seems pretty unlikely uh, that this is going to be possible. Berlin requires about 10,000 tonnes of supplies per day to keep those 2.4 million citizens alive. How on earth is that possible when a C-47 Dakota can only carry two and a half tonnes in its hold? So this is the logistical nightmare that is facing the Western Allies in the spring of 1948. Yeah, and I I found it interesting when you're describing the road links that there were small outposts that the Western Allies were allowed to have along the Autobahn in East Germany, which I wasn't aware of at all, that, that these were in, in place. Yes. So so when the um, when lorries and cars travelled from Western-occupied Germany into uh, West Berlin, crossing the Soviet sector, 
um, they they had to use a, a, a one autobahn which had been you know denoted as a, an autobahn that was to be used by the Allied forces. And of course, you know, things went wrong. Trucks ran out of petrol. They got punctures. The state of this road was absolutely appalling. It was filled with huge potholes where, you know, mines had gone off and shells had landed and exploded. Um, so, yes, the Allies were, uh, by agreement with the Soviets, they'd been allowed to set up these tiny little outposts, um, these, you know, remote little, almost like service stations along this autobahn where lorries and trucks could stop, refuel and mend any technical problems they, they might have. Now, when the Soviets decided to cut the links between Western Germany and the Western sectors of Berlin, this wasn't, wasn't overnight. It was a sort of st- a, steady, a, a, a steady process um, one by one, uh, taking out the various means that the Allies, Western Allies, had to get into Berlin. So they'd shut down bridges. They'd cause problems on the on the ferries across the the major rivers, and then uh, they, they would shut down these outposts. Uh, that was quite a pro- provocative act because it meant that no lorries lorries could no longer re- refuel or, or 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 you know get help technical help they might need on the autobahns, and so. You know, over the course of spring, March, April, May, they gradually uh, sort of, uh, you know, clamped down on the West's ability to get supplies into Berlin. Many of the way in the West, they didn't believe that the Soviets would ever dare shut down completely the road and rail links. But um, as you mentioned, you know, one of the American trains was stopped. Um, lorries were were constantly being stopped from going into Berlin. It became apparent you know, that the West had a real problem on its hands, that if the Soviets did indeed shut those land routes, then they really did have a major logistical nightmare on their hands of what to do. And there are some inside Berlin, notably the uh, British commandant, who by this time was a chap called General Otway Herbert, he simply did not believe that it was feasible for the British garrison to hold out um, inside Berlin. He believed it would simply be starved into submission and he actually proposed it would be better better for the British to leave Berlin while they could under their own steam than being driven out, you know, uh, effectively driven out by the Soviets. Frank Howley was having absolutely none of this. He was saying there's no way that the Americans were ever going to leave Berlin. And he were, so he was really determined that... Um, that this air bridge, the uh, the 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 fabled Berlin airlift, uh, was going to happen. It was going to be a success, um, and he was going to make it work. The only problem was in the spring of 1948, he didn't quite know how, and that was the great problem: was to work out how on earth you supply a major uh, Western capital when the airlift starts. It's not running very efficiently, and this guy, Bill Tunner, is called in. But also the person I found particularly interesting is this former Luftwaffe commander who had been part of the supervision of the attempted German airlift into Stalingrad during World War Two. Yes. Now, what happened is the Western Allies basically decided to take help and advice from wherever they could find it. And um, one uh, a man, uh, before I get on to those points he raised, uh, one of the key figures who has almost been airbrushed out of the history books, but was in fact the architect 
of the uh, airlift was this chap called uh, Reginald Waite. He was the air commodore in the British sector of Berlin. And he was a brilliant, a sort of classic British boffin, if you like, a, a genius mathematician. He was said to, to never go anywhere without his slide rule. And he sat down and worked out that there were eight uh, airfields in Western Germany that could be used to supply Berlin. And there were two at the time, there were two airfields in the Western sectors of Berlin that could be used to receive uh, supplies from Western Germany. And he basically did a, a, an extremely complex mathematical equation, which worked out that if you had, um, you know, a set number of planes landing, um, making a set number of flights um, from these eight airfields into the two airfields in, in West Berlin, then it was feasible uh, and possible to supply, uh, you know, two and a half million people with the necessary food and supplies. It would be touch and go. It would be, um, it would be, they would be kept alive on subsistence rations and there would be very limited supplies of coal, which of course were needed, needed to, uh, to create electricity and to pump water from the aquafilters um, underneath Berlin. But he, he figured that it was actually just about possible to do this. He presented his idea to the British commandant, General Herbert, who said, this is ridiculous, it's not possible. He then went to the uh, British military governor of occupied Germany, uh, General Brian Robertson. He said he thought it was impossible as well. So uh, Reginald Waite next went to Lucius Clay, who was a military governor of American-occupied Germany. Clay was intrigued, looked at the blueprint and said, let's go for it. And with the support uh, of, of of Colonel Frank Howley, these two Americans decided to give it a go. They brought the British on board, and really they commandeered planes from everywhere across the world. I mean, literally everywhere, Dakotas and any other plane that was you know feasible or viable to be used in the airlift that was to follow uh, was brought into uh, Western Germany, and absolutely extraordinary undertaking airmen being flown in from honolulu hawaii from alaska from all from british colonies all across the globe were being flown into western germany to take part in this this quite extraordinary um, effort to supply uh, western berlin with enough food and fuel to keep it alive now the americans had also they already had experience of an airlift because this chap you mentioned general tunner general tonnage tunner um he was known as he'd spent his war flying weaponry um, across the himalayas into uh into the to, to the army of chiang kai-shek in china and he knew an awful lot about how to run an airlift and the americans re immediately realized that tunner was their man they needed him to organize, to build on really what Reginald Waite had, had, you know, his blueprint for the airlift. So they brought in Tunner, Tonnage Tunner, and he was placed in charge of the American side of the airlift and, and in fact would eventually take control of the entire lift, uh, airlift and uh, with even British planes coming under his command. Now, Tunner was prepared to take advice from anyone. His one problem was that these planes, they were already pretty battered. Most of them had, you know, uh, done a, a long and noble wartime service. They were covered in dents and their engines were pretty dodgy and faulty. And he needed a team of engineers and he didn't have enough engineers. Uh, he couldn't find them in America and he couldn't find them in Britain. 
but he could find them in Germany. He turned to the Luftwaffe, and he turned to one general in particular who'd been in charge of logistics uh, for the Luftwaffe and asked him and his mechanics to help repair uh, the planes they were going to use for the Berlin airlift. And this is exactly what happened. Uh, general von Röden, uh, he was called. And General von Röden had had a very interesting war. He'd been, as you said, he'd been in Stalingrad, and he'd watched the German attempts to airlift supplies into Stalingrad, which had not been a success. And he provided General Tunnage Tunner with some advice on how to run an airlift he said the problem in Stalingrad had not been uh, the fact that the Germans didn't have enough planes. He said that they'd actually had too many planes. It had been completely chaotic and that any airlift had to be run um, totally methodically and it had to be run a bit like a machine. There was no uh, room for, for any form of human error. And this um, Tanner took really took what von Röden was saying and built this into the airlift. The airlift was going to be entirely run on instruments, um, a, a fairly risky undertaking given that instruments were often faulty at this time. But there was to be no uh, room for human error. This was to be run by machinery, by instruments, and this was to govern the uh, airlift. It was to be a precision-run operation with planes flying in, you know, at five different levels, you know, just a few hundred feet apart. I mean, the, it was staggering, the planes landing every 90 seconds into the into the two airfields in, in Berlin. Um, and, and gr you know, gradually, from what was a very shaky start, the, the Berlin airlift gradually began to try to break the, uh, the Soviet blockade on the western sectors of Berlin. And I really like some of the the stories that you've uh, discovered in in this section, as I as I did in in all the other sections of the book. But the the one that I I particularly enjoyed was the the Western Allies decide they need more capacity to land aircraft. So an airfield is built at Tegel in the French sector, and there's a slight challenge with a radio tower, isn't there? Yes, this is a rather wonderful story. Um, yeah, you're right. So they, there were two airfields in, in Berlin at the time. There was Tempelhof and there was Gatow. Uh, they realised if they were to bring in enough, you know, the supplies they needed, they really needed a third airfield. So Tegel, they chose Tegel, which was this um, area of wasteland in the French sector. And um, uh, they, they enlisted huge numbers of uh, uh, Berlin volunteers to come and help build it. It was a quite remarkable undertaking because within a very short space of time a, a third huge airfield was built in Berlin but Tegel was on the very edge of the Soviet sector and it had at one end of the airfield an enormous Soviet radio mast and it was quite clear to any pilot flying into Tegel that this air, this this mast this radio mast was um, in the way of incoming flights the French asked the Soviet commandant, General Kotikov, if he would kindly take down his mast. Not surprisingly, General Kotikov said no. The uh, French then said they would pay him, they would offer compensation if he would take down the mast. And once again, General Kotikov said no. At which point, the, the French uh, commandant decided to take matters into his own hands. He invited a British and American delegation to come and have drinks at the new Tegel air, airfield. And as they were sipping their champagne, 
there was suddenly an almighty explosion. Everyone, including General uh, Tunner, ran across to the window of the new airfield just in time to see the Soviet radio mast come crashing down to the ground. The French had put explosives under its forelegs and they had resolved matters in a, in a way that the Soviet commandant had declined to do. The radio mast was no more and Tegel was open for business. Um, and suddenly a huge amount more supplies could be brought into the city. Of course, the, the, the Soviets were absolutely infuriated by this. General Kotakov came stomping round to the French commandant's headquarters. You know, he said, how did you do this? How did you do this? And the, general, the French commandant turned to him and deliberately misunderstood him and said, uh, with dynamite under the forelegs, um, and uh, which did not endear him to the Soviet commandant, but it was a, 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 a concise uh, summary of what had been done. The West now had three airfields with which to supply the Western sectors, um, and that was to prove um, a huge bonus when it came to, to you know, bringing in supplies to Berlin. Well, was there a fear that the Soviets would use military force to take Berlin during this period? There was a constant fear that, yes, that the Soviets would bring in tanks. Um, you know, that you've got to remember that uh, Soviet-occupied Germany is full of uh, war-ready soldiers and a huge amount of uh, munitions and tanks. And the Soviets constantly made threatening noises. They brought, you know, at one point they brought their tanks and they ringed the uh, Western sectors of Berlin with their tanks. And there was a very real fear uh, that they would move into the city, which they could have done with, you know, with remarkable ease. However, both the British and Americans, and again, particularly the Americans, had a fairly good espionage network working inside uh, uh, Soviet-occupied Berlin. And they picked up intelligence to the effect that the Soviets would not dare to use uh, uh, obvious force to uh, wrest control of, of the Western sectors of Berlin. They were pretty sure that this was not going to happen. They were certainly sure enough to give them confidence to continue with the with the with the uh, airlift, which uh, was becoming more and more effective with every month that passed, it went through. It should be said, it went through an extremely difficult period in uh, November 1948, November, December, January. You know, anyone who's been to Berlin will know that the weather conditions in these months is often really appalling in Berlin. Um, first of all, there's the problem of ice and snow, but more of a problem, and certainly more of a problem in that year, was fog, which shut down the airfields for days at a time. No supplies could get into the city at all. And Berliners, you know, I, I read many of the accounts of Berliners, you know, at this time, and they were absolutely starving. Uh, there was so little food coming in. Uh, they were living off what was called the, um, the, you know, the basic subsistence ration, which was only 1,300 calories a day. And often even that was unavailable in the shops. The shops had simply run out of supplies. So these were desperate times for Berliners. But the weather improved just when it really looked like it was getting bad, like, like it was looking that the Soviets were actually going to win and that the Western powers were going to have to leave Berlin. Suddenly, the weather changes. Uh, the, the airfields reopen again. Uh, huge amounts of supplies are being brought into the city. And 
I, you might remember I said that as an absolute minimum, Berlin needed 4,000 uh, tons of supplies a day. By Easter of 1949, they're bringing in more than 12,000 tons of supplies a day. So they're bringing in more than three times the subsistence level. It's an absolutely remarkable achievement, really, that the airlift is able to bring all this all this food and uh, these supplies into the city. And really, I think at this point, uh, Stalin and the Soviets are beginning to realise that they've made a gamble that they cannot win, that the, the West is actually going to win this battle uh, for the hearts and minds of West Berlin, that they are not going to achieve their goal of starving Berlin into submission. Do you know why the Soviets then lifted the blockade? Because I would have thought they'd want to keep it there just purely from an inconvenience point of view and and the Western allies having to use up a lot of resource to continue to supply Berlin. Partly, partly that, but 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 uh, you've got to remember that by the spring of 1949, the Western Allies have got together and they've launched a very very effective counter blockade against uh, Soviet occupied Eastern Germany. The Soviets in Eastern Germany are heavily dependent on coal and other raw materials that are coming from Western Germany, so they they. And just as the Western uh, allies are dependent on food from Eastern Germany, the uh, Soviets are dependent on supplies and fuel coming from Western Germany. This is part of the reparations deal that has been struck at the Potsdam Conference, whereby the Soviets are to be, are to be supplied from the great coal mines of the Ruhr, etc. The Westerners uh, decide to instigate a counter blockade, which means that absolutely no supplies of raw materials are getting to Eastern Germany from the from the industrial heartland of Western Germany. And this is really punishing for the, for the Soviet occupying powers in Eastern Germany. And I think this is one of the uh, very little little written about, but one of the uh, the key factors in Stalin's decision to gradually negotiate an end to the blockade and an end to the airlift. And, and, and by Easter of 1949, as I say, when huge amounts of Western surprise, supplies are being flown into Berlin, there are feelers, diplomatic feelers, are being put out in Washington between the Soviets and the Americans at actually quite a surprisingly junior level when, when it first starts out to see if actually there is a way to bring this kind of this this showdown to some sort of amicable or vaguely amicable solution your your book ends with the end of the airlift on the 12th of may 1949 after 223 days you know this is quite quite a considerable siege uh, that has been taking place finally the soviet blockade is lifted and those all important road and rail links through from western uh, the western sectors of germany through the western zones of germany through to the western sectors of berlin are reopened and so uh, not only are supplies still being flown in by plane but of course now lorries trucks and trains begin to bring supplies huge quantities of supplies uh, into the western sectors of berlin this is the end of the airlift, the end of the blockade. Well, the end of the blockade, the airlift continues for some months, but in a, in a rather reduced form. Um, but it is the end of the Soviet blockade. It is the end of Stalin's attempt to wrest control of Western Berlin. 
uh, a sort of status quo emerges whereby the West will remain in their sectors of, of Berlin and the Soviets will remain in East Berlin. We see here really the beginning of the Cold War that will that is going to settle in over the next decades with you know the West controlling Western Germany and the Soviets controlling Eastern Germany. Um, and that's where I, my book comes to an end there because I really, I feel that that moment in 1949 really does shape uh, Europe and the world for decades to come. This really is the beginning of the Cold War and uh, the great standoff between, you know, uh, the, the NATO powers and the Warsaw Pact powers. And I should mention the epilogue of the book is really the formation of NATO, which happens at the same time as the end of the Berlin, Berlin blockade. The Western powers have realised that their best hopes of success is to come together in this defensive alliance, which becomes, you know, the North Atlantic, Atlantic Treaty Organisation, NATO. This almighty alliance between these all these Western powers, um, who will, if the guiding principle of NATO is that if one power is attacked, it is considered an attack on all of them, which means that if the Soviet Union ever attacks one power, it's going to face the, uh, the mighty power of all the NATO signatories, um, which are going to go to the defense of that one power. This is the beginning of the stalemate, the, the, very, the very uneasy stalemate, that of course is the hallmark of the, of the Cold War for the, ne for the next uh, three, four decades. The book is called Checkmate in Berlin, the Cold War showdown that shaped the modern world. There are links in the episode notes where you can buy the book and there's also a book giveaway, so do make sure you check that out. Now, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons. However, I want to especially thank our Politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 US dollars a month to keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Mark Labance, Frederick Esposito, Jack Madwed, and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.